0: Hi everyone and welcome to an episode of the Product Coalition European Tour London series where today I'm very excited to be joined by Rich Miranoff. Welcome Rich.
1: Thanks so much. I'd love to be
0: here. It's Great to have you on board, Rich. I've, I've wanted to do a session with yourself on the podcast for, for a very long time so I'm really looking forward to, to chatting today.
1: Thanks for setting this up and I'm sorry I can't be in London to do it but remote from San Francisco seems like the second best choice.
0: It's good enough for me. It's good enough for me. Now, before we get stuck in for everyone listening, this tour and every single podcast episode is dedicated to raising awareness and support for the bushfire affected communities and wildlife in Australia. So if you do enjoy this episode or any of the podcast episodes and Product Coalition European tour, please consider showing your thanks by heading over to bushfire.productcoalition.com to donate. I'm visiting 50 cities across Europe, sorry, five cities across Europe. I wish it was 50, and interviewing over 50 product leaders to gain insights, knowledge, and experience to share with you, the Product Coalition global community. Now, if you've just discovered the Product Coalition, we're a global product community of half a million readers, 6,000 Slack members, and thousands of podcast listeners. Before we get stuck into the episode of Richard, I do need to give a huge thanks to some of the brands and people that have been major donors to the fundraiser at bushfire.productcoalition.com. First up is UserPilot. UserPilot is a code-free user onboarding and adoption tool designed especially for product management teams. UserPilot helps to increase conversion, user retention rates, and reduce churn by guiding new users to the first aha moment with interactive walkthroughs, contextual product tours, and onboarding checklists. It allows product managers to build fully customizable behavior-triggered in-app experiences with a simple visual editor. Head over to userpilot.com to grab a demo and a free trial. Shobic Jug is the intentional product manager. chobit is a Google product manager and Showbit helps product managers become product leaders and have careers they can be proud of. Go to intentionalproductmanager.com and sign up for Showbit's free class on the habits that turns product managers into exceptional product leaders and help them through move through their careers fast. Product-led teams like Mixpanel and Flexport know that the best time to capture engagement is when a user is already inside the product. That's why they use Chameleon to drive feature adoption, build onboarding flows, and gather user feedback. Give it a go at trychameleon.com success. Now, there's two other individuals that I'd also like to thank for their donations. One is Chris Miles, and the other is this product guy I've heard of called Rich Mironoff.
1: I was really thrilled. By the way, I'm I'm so pleased that you're doing this fundraising for an important cause. Those of us far away from Australia, you know, are mourning remotely and wondering how we can help. So I really appreciate your leaning in and, and making this a mission-driven activity.
0: My pleasure, my pleasure. It's great to do. it. It's great to have, give it some purpose beyond sort of creating value for the, for the community. So let's get stuck in, Rich. First up, I always have an ice break on a podcast, so. In Melbourne, it was a bit of a locals guide, and then I stepped it up in Sydney, and we had a pub quiz. But for this tour, for the for the Product Coalition European tour, for each city, I've gone city specific. And for London, I've gone with, is it English or not? And so we've got a bit of a quiz for you. got a couple of products, and I'm going to get your read, Rich, on whether you think that they were English invented products or not. Ooh,
1: this this could be a hard one. Uh, I, I'm I'm from the valley where everything was invented, whether it was invented here or not.
0: So <laughs> I didn't include this in the show notes for you deliberately. So let, let's see how how you go. Right, so the first one for you Rich, is carbonated water, aka soda water. Uh,
1: you know, I always think of it as associated with New York City. So I, I'll guess no. I'll guess it's not from London.
0: you would be Right and wrong. It's English, but not from London. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So my trusty friend, the internet tells me that carbon water, a.k.a. soda water, was first invented by Joseph Priestley in 1767. Uh Through some experimentation, he discovered a method for infusing water with carbon dioxide.
1: And I think of him mostly as a chemist, but I guess he could be a, a soda water inventor too.
0: Yeah, well, that's it. They blended a lot of industries back then. Uh, He managed it by suspending a bowl of water above a beer vat at a Leeds brewery. So like all good English inventions, it involved a brewery. Okay, next up, we've got the magazine. The
1: magazine. So the word's originally French, although the Russians borrowed it for their word for department store. So I'm going to think... Oh, uh, and we may be talking about uh, magazines as in ammunition, or we may be talking about magazines as flip books. I'm gonna say no because it doesn't sound like a, an English word at all.
0: Okay, the magazine was English. Ah, publisher Edward Cave coined the term in 1731 for his Gentleman's Magazine, a, a rather dry-sounding monthly missive containing wide-ranging reports on everything from old and new wigs. To prices of goods, stocks, and monthly bill of mortality. Huh. Thrilling read.
1: Well, you you got me o for two so far. Keep going.
0: <laughs> well, that, that's it on the on the Eng- English or not not quiz there. But Rich, have you spent much time in London? I,
1: I've been through as a tourist uh, several times, and I've been there on work a few times. It's a, it's a wonderful city. I actually got to Cambridge. Uh, last year for the first time as well which was quite lovely so i'm always a fan i do a stop in dublin ireland every year to do some teaching and that requires at a minimum that i change planes somewhere in near heathrow and it's always a good excuse to drop out for a few days and and see some of the friends both product related and otherwise
0: awesome good to hear it's been a long while since i've been in london and it was a great experience i really enjoyed, enjoyed being back there So today, Rich, we're going to be talking about convincing execs that they don't always know users' needs in detail. I'm looking forward to get stuck into that. But before we do, Rich, would you mind giving the audience a little bit of a background about yourself?
1: Sure. So I have 35 years of software product management here in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So for those who thought that this was a new profession, not so much. Most of that's been B2B enterprise, a lot of infrastructure, databases, and network security and such things. What I'm doing these days really I have two or three pieces of my personal consulting empire, which by the way, includes only me. And one of those is that I coach heads of product or product leaders. So those tend to be CPOs and VPs of product and directors of product, often about the move from individual contributor product manager up into the politics and organizational issues and design problems of how we get other executives to help us get products built. A second thing I do is sometimes, at least in the San Francisco area, I drop into a company as the interim head of product. That's generally not something anybody wants to call me for because it indicates much, much deeper issues. But I'll pop into a company for three months or five months, try to get it all straightened out, put out the dumpster fires and help them hire a full-time permanent person to take on that company and that product team. And then the last thing, I spend a lot of time thinking about organizational design and motivators and how we get the rest of the company to help us do what we have no authority to demand, but only responsibility for. And so that's a lot of thinking about how other organizations are motivated, how they're paid and rewarded, what kinds of people put themselves in the sales or finance or marketing organizations. So we as product folks can approach them as they are instead of how we would like them to be.
0: Fantastic. Well, that, that certainly ties into the topic today as well. You know, how do we go about convincing execs? Obviously, we're going to talk about users' needs, but pretty much anything and everything is part of our role as product leaders. So let's get started first, Rich, by building up some, some empathy. You know, we care about our execs. What's a typical day in the life of an exec? I mean, is it just stress on the golf course? And, you
1: know? I have to admit, I've taken one turn at the CEO job. I was really terrible at it, failed miserably, took some time to lick my wounds and, and heal up again. I have tremendous empathy for CEOs and other C-level folks. The things I notice about them and that I lived through myself is that particularly the CEO, is getting thrashed all day long. So the incoming rate of interrupts and demands and things is so high that it's nearly impossible to even get through the list. And high on that set of interrupts are probably three sets of things that really shape how a CEO sees the world. One is their investors, the board of directors, who are polite enough to only call, let's say, once a day to ask how revenue is going (laughs) Okay, twice a day, right? So we know that that the CEO, in addition to the VP of sales, is getting pummeled all day long by investors who wanna know that the money's been well spent and that the revenue's up and to the right. So that shapes nearly every behavior. The second thing is that they tend to get escalated calls from the support side from only the very, very largest customers. So if I have three big customers and a thousand small customers, Most of the small customers deal with our support team or customer success team as they are, but the two or three really biggest customers feel entitled, maybe are entitled, to call the CEO directly with complaints, good or bad or indifferent. So that's a bias, a recency bias and a frequency bias that may not be obvious. And then the third set of things that come into the CEO all day long are escalations from the sales team. And I come from an enterprise B2B side. So these are big deals that the sales team will inevitably describe as almost sold and almost signed, we just need this one little tiny feature from engineering and product. And in the course of a day, a CEO is going to get, let's say, five of those. What that means is that no matter where you come from, what your background is, or you know what functional group you came out from, if you're sitting in the CEO chair, you're getting a pretty worked view of the world. You're getting pounded for revenue. You're getting pounded for deals that would be revenue if you could just twist the engineering VP's arm a little bit and do what the customers say is really trivial and simple. And you're getting complaints from folks who are big customers who have some beef about a login screen or workflow or some data issue, right? You get very little feedback from small customers, from new customers, from markets you haven't seen yet. And when you're out on the road, you're pitching right? So CEOs are the chief sales officers. So rather than sitting in a room and asking 20 leading questions and shutting up and letting somebody tell you for 40 minutes what they really want, you've got slides, you've got pitches, you've got contracts in your hand. The sales teams have given you a list of who to favor and talk to. The CEO is really out there selling. And we know that when you're selling, you're not really listening. You're anticipating the objections so you can answer them and move folks from prospect to customer. So when I think about the CEO job and many other folks on the executive team, it's this relentless, endless thrashing of next emergency, next emergency.
0: Rich, in your, in your experience working with the CEOs and execs, um, does their own career background create a bias as to what they're interested in and how they prioritise that day that you just talked talk to me through?
1: I I think that's true. Certainly, if you're a CEO who's come up on the sales side, I know to the 95% likelihood that you believe that selling is hard and building and engineering products isn't so hard because you've spent your time in in the sales trenches. And so the idea that, that the engineering product team would come back and say something's impossible or very difficult can be surprising. I see folks who've been subject experts, so... If this is a company that makes brand-oriented animation tools for marketing folks at famous consumer brand companies, the CEO may very well have been one of those animation brand marketing folks who came up and had the idea, which tends to mean that you substitute your own opinions and point of view instead of what the customers are telling you, because they're just not smart as smart as you are. And if they were as smart as you are, they would know how to use your tools. And then the third group I, I'm always watching for is folks who come up on the finance side, sorry, finance. It's finance if it's more than $10 million and have a very strong belief system that everything can be measured and quantified and the ROIs are good to four decimal places. And I've never, ever, ever found anything on the engineering or product side that I even believe may be my first digit, let alone the first two. So the idea that we can fully size a big software project or we can completely predict how much revenue is going to come in on a new product doesn't match my sense of reality, but it's anchored in somebody on the finance side's view that it's all measurable.
0: And to be sarcastic on that, it seems that no matter how many rows or columns you add to that spreadsheet, it just never quite comes out. That's right.
1: And, and what's important here is to say that all kinds of people get into all kinds of executive roles. It's absolutely not my intention to say that they're bad or uninformed what we want to do is we want to understand wh- where they've come from what their opinions and biases and inputs are so that we can deal with each other honestly and honorably and with respect instead of being angry right this isn't about who hit whom first it's not about who's smarter it's about getting to the right answer in a way that respects everybody but still gets the right answer
0: and for me that's the art of a, an amazing ceo when they can balance that with all of the pressures. That you That's right. With.
1: And, uh, and I've right. met a lot of CEOs who've reached past whatever functional group they came up from, and they're really generalists, and they're thoughtful, and they recognize their own patterns. But I think the majority of folks in the CEO job and every other job really haven't gotten there, and so we can't always pick the CEOs we work for.
0: Absolutely. Let, let's talk a bit about, firstly, the principle of the topic today, Rich, which is we're talking about convincing execs about the the fact that they don't know users' needs in detail. First question on that is really, should execs know users' needs in detail?
1: I don't really think that's part of their fundamental job. They may tell themselves, I've told myself that. But in reality, when you look at what an executive's day is full of, Meetings and closing deals and calls with board members and going out to do talks and speeches in front of big audiences and push, 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 pushing products and our numbers. There's really very little time in there to do open ended, honest, extended interviews of end users. They will run into the most senior buyer at each of their largest customers. And I can tell you almost entirely that those most senior execs who sign purchase orders for our product have no idea who uses them or what they're for, but they may have collected a couple of post-it notes from some actual users to hand over in some meeting. Those folks have very little context as well. So what we're dealing with is both our executives and our customers' executives are up in the positioning zone. They're talking about phrases and catch words and vague ideas of ROI and value, but none of those people actually sit down and use our stuff. And so their opinions about what's good and what's not are interesting, but generally very lightweight and and lack underlying analysis and substance. And none of them want to hear that, but if you can pull them aside one-on-one and not embarrass them in front of anyone else, often they will admit and agree to the fact that they're really not getting solid information from users, they're getting requests from buyers.
0: Right. And I've certainly felt that in my own experience, particularly in the B2B space where my exec or head of sales is is meeting with a CEO or a head of X at the client side and they're the person that's got to buy the software. That's right. making an and, and, ass-
1: and, and they have some blanket uh, demand like, oh, we need more integrations with back-end systems. Well, okay, that's fine, but... Not actionable by itself,
0: right? No, and if you're lucky, the the, the people or the person that leads the back end is systems integrations or Bob or Jenny in middle management. They're actually going to be using this on a day to day basis. They don't get a seat at the table until maybe post sales. That's out. right. And so,
1: so we as product folks have to know that this is the case. We have to cut through all of the selling and politics and executive organizations. And find the people who actually use or directly manage the folks who use what we sell, what we make, because those are the folks who actually know. And it's humbling to talk to the end users and find out that nearly nobody in their executive chain or our executive chain really knows what's going on.
0: So why do some execs, Rich, believe that they do know in detail everything that users want?
1: Well, it's not an unreasonable thing to believe. First of all, if you're the founder of the company and you grew it from nothing, then it was your idea or your founder's idea at the very beginning and you've survived. There's a survival bias here where I ran the company when it was two people and I ran the company when it was 11 people. And now that it's a thousand people and we have 10,000 customers, my impressions haven't moved even though the facts have moved. Right. So if I'm a subject expert, even if I haven't been in that job for 10 years because I've been running this company, I bring forward my experience. Uh, I've worked with a bunch of founders and CEOs of healthcare software companies. And to a person, they were all IT managers at one or another hospital somewhere. But it turns out that almost no two hospitals have the same systems and work the same way. And so they're holding on to some five-year-old or ten-year-old vision of what they remember from their last job. And it's just out of date or it's wrong. Uh, one of the really smart folks I worked with in that space taught me that when you've seen one hospital, you've seen one hospital. But you know, it's a combination of personal expertise and, and ego and belief in yourself. And it got us this far. I think about Barry O'Reilly's book about unlearning, where the things that got you to where you are are not the things that are going to get you to where you need to go next. And it's really, this is a human emotional issue. It's really hard to set aside what we believe or know about what's led us to where we are.
0: Can I ask, Rich, when CEOs have deep experience working with product teams, have you experienced a difference between working and communicating with them differently to CEOs that might be new to working with product teams?
1: Yeah. I generally observe that most companies, certainly ones that are new to product management, don't know what product managers do and think of us as an execution team. And if you believe that the product management's job is to take the post-it note that you just wrote down from your customer call and walk it over to engineering and turn it into a story and deliver it by Friday, then you're not actually expecting your product team to have insights and underlying root cause analysis and priorities and deep understanding of what's going on in the markets. So folks who are new to product management tend not to think of us as value-add, they think of us as transactional folks. Uh, You know, I usually get the call after two entire consecutive product teams have quit because the CEO won't actually let them make any decisions or prioritize anything. So I tend to come in a little later in that cycle. But CEOs who, or executive teams who've been around the block, who understand how tech is built, who have a balanced view, are looking to the product team for trade-offs. They're looking to the product team for insights, for the challenges of too many versions of the product or not enough versions of the product or what's happening. Where are we going next at, at the you know three-month to 12-month level? So the good CEOs, the experienced CEOs, are getting out of the product teams the insights and aggregated analysis they don't get from individual sales
0: and listening to those and balancing those yeah and
1: i have a a long talk that somebody can listen to at their own leisure about the four laws of software economics and the first law of software economics is that your engineering team's not big enough right no company on the planet has enough folks on their development engineering side to build all the things that my executive team thought of this morning on their commute into work And so the, I just want it and can't you just do it misses the fact that every time we choose to do one thing, we're setting 27 other things back in the backlog or for never, because it's just physically impossible to get all the things done to the extent that we look to product management to explain the trade-offs. Because we live in the exclusive or universe where you can do A or you can do B, But just because we want them both, we can't do them both. And that's a really unpopular and surprising set of things for most of the company that engineering isn't just sitting on its hands, eating bonbons and playing multiplayer games. They're actually working really, really hard and they're busy and they're overcommitted, which means we have to make choices. And that's deeply unpopular to folks who are trying to put revenue on the board this quarter.
0: Yeah, and obviously when they're focusing on revenue, but the benefit of that constraint is that costs are controlled.
1: That's right. costs. And there's a lot of places. Sometimes I joke that all product managers should change their middle name to Cassandra. For those who don't know their, their Greek mythology, Cassandra was the woman cursed by the gods to always foretell the future and never to be believed, so she's the one who famously said, hey, don't roll that wooden horse into the city of Troy because it's full of Greek soldiers, and everybody tut-tutted and they moved on, right? We are often the people who are describing the bad side effect of packaging pricing changes, or the bad outcome of letting a couple of customers get their own custom code lines, or the bad result of whatever it is, but they're usually... A little further away than the current quarter and the current quarter's revenue. So it's easy to be labeled as somebody who's a naysayer, Mm -hmm. who's negative, because we are actually looking out two quarters, five quarters, nine quarters and noticing uh, when I was just talking with some folks uh, yesterday. For instance, if we're in the software business and we write perpetual licenses with very small support fees where customers are going to pay us for the next upgrade. We are putting all of ourselves in a position where the customers have a disincentive to go from version two to version three, even though version three has all the fixes they need because they're going to have to budget and pay for it. And then we end up supporting 16 back versions because we have all these customers that we've put in a box to not want to upgrade because we've mispriced and mispackaged our products. And so I get to say that. But when there's a big deal on the table and the customer really wants a perpetual license... I don't always win, right? So we on the product side tend to be the folks who are looking out a little further and see where the next shoes are going to drop.
0: All right. Let's bring it back to the users' needs. So let's run with some some assumptions here. So we've got our, our product team. We've got UX or customer focused. We're working day to day. We have a good customer support team. And we've got a hardy exec that just believes, and I think a founder's a good idea, to play out this fictional story a founder that was part of the company built it up and still holds true that they they know they know those end users better right. than anyone but they're out of touch yes now that was my five years ago so coming in as a head of product or vp of product or even maybe just a senior product manager what do you need to start to do different to convince that founder that you know the latest users needs and they're more meaningful
1: Right. Really good question. I think there's probably two or three or four things. Let me list a few. So one is often I run into organizations where the product managers don't actually speak directly with end users outside the sales cycle. And so they're getting all their input from notes and salesforce.com or whatever the sales team tells them. That's a really slanted view of the world. So absolutely the first thing is to make sure that every single person on the product team, regardless of their level you know, or experience or title is setting up calls with actual end users, or maybe even folks who turned off our service to ask open-ended questions for a half hour, or 45 minutes about what's working and what their issues are. And we should get permission to record those. I always want to have a designer and a senior developer listening in because they hear different things than I do. And then they write me little notes on post-it notes to ask. And we capture those, we capture ten of those, we capture twenty of those, and we look for patterns. And the big advantage here is we get to bring back some real artifacts to the executive team and say, in some appropriate meeting, let's play you five forty second clips from five different interviews with five end users who are telling us these similar things which you guys may not have heard of. Right? The nominal thing here is that we're just teaching them one thing they may not have heard. The subliminal message is You aren't always right, but I'm not going to call you out in a big meeting and tell you that. So how do we actually inject real customer? And and there's a lot of sort of silly, worthless voice of customer stuff that surveys, right? No, we need actual specific customers and their actual voices instead of some boiled down NPFS thing, right? The second thing I do, and, and, and this is a little more emotionally fraught, I go back over the last four quarters with the product engineering team, and we identify a bunch of things we built and finished and shipped that didn't sell or weren't used or were features that nobody takes advantage of. And I compile a list of those and I try to figure out where those came from. And they came from one-off deals and they came from wherever they came from. And then one-on-one outside the executive staff meeting, I'll walk the key executives through a list of where we wasted 30 or 40 or 50% of last year's engineering. By building stuff we didn't validate, by building stuff nobody's going to use, by building things that a particular deal wanted then didn't close. And the reason to do that politely with the door closed, because I don't really want to call anybody out in public, but I have to unwind their point of view that they're usually right. And if I can find one or two things on that list that each of the execs forced into the roadmap, we can have that bit of embarrassment offline. And then in the bigger meeting, I can just talk in general about how we really need to validate stuff and not waste huge amounts of engineering, right? And then the third thing I would probably look for is I'm usually trying to uncover places where we did a one-off code line or we built something special for one really big customer, but we didn't estimate the overhead and the support and all of the tech debt that ensued. And we go back and we find out how big those deals were and they weren't very big. And we notice that we're spending more money supporting that one-off code branch than we got on the deal. And that's another way to gently kick the legs out of the argument that says, hey, it's a 200,000 pound deal. We have to do everything possible to make that come true, including all kinds of unnatural acts on the engineering side, right? So what I'm trying to do in all those cases is not talk in generalities and not be a philosopher and not say I'm smarter or better than anybody else, but to bring forward evidence that's in executive small format, easily digestible bits, to beat on them for months to try to get through the idea that we really should do validation.
0: Right, okay. Can I ask, when product doesn't have a seat at the exact table, so there's no VP of product at the exact table, for instance, what do you suggest with regards to how you can create that conversation in the room with the executives, how do you leave that for them to make sure actually post this activity we've learned and let's talk about that. Is that a mindset thing that they just have to get there themselves or is there a way of provoking that when you're not in the room?
1: So first of all, I would say if there's not a product person around the big kids table with the other executives, then I think we've got some fundamental problems if we're in the product business. Right. So My first recommendation is always to get a senior person, a VP, a CPO, or somebody who is a peer to engineering or development and a peer to sales and marketing and support. Because if we pushed the product team down in the organization, they don't have a voice and nobody's hearing them. Second choice, sometimes the VP of engineering or chief technical officer has a bunch of product experience and can bring this forward and maybe bring some of the product folks into the meetings as necessary. It's not necessarily true that the folks running engineering really understand product, but sometimes they do. And it's occasionally true that the person running marketing has been a product person before less. So, but I think you, you called out the failure right away, which is there's no product leader who's able to wrestle the roadmap and the priorities and the distinctions and the trade-offs. So somebody else is making them with very poor insight and experience.
0: To flip it around the other way, if, if for an exec listening that maybe feels that they just not across any of the user's needs right now, how would you suggest they go about either being more approachable so that information is being pushed to them or go and pull that information themselves?
1: I generally encourage them not to pull it themselves because they're too busy and they often lack the specific experience or skill to do that, even though it's insulting when I say it that way. I think I'd ask the question of who in the organization is doing long form, open ended user goal interviews and discovery outside the sales process. And that's really, really important because salespeople's job is not to uncover generic needs. Their job is to twist arms and get a yes with whatever we're selling. And when the executive team doesn't know who does this, I can then suggest that it's the product team if they have one, right? But good product thinking reminds us that we don't sell solutions until we've identified problems, right? So the problem I'm trying to highlight is that no one in the company may in fact be doing deep analytical, repeated, high volume interviewing of real customers and prospects in a way that yields insight. Until we've got agreement that that's not happening, any suggestions about who's going to do it are pretty irrelevant, right? So my experience is that most of this time on my side is spent identifying the problems and highlighting the root issues, not so much figuring out how we're going to fix them. Because once you've seen what's really not working, there's only a couple of answers and you get there fast.
0: Which I'm going to take it up just one more level in the in the organizational tree here. When it comes to board members, for board members, we want to make sure their exec are across users' needs and not using their bias or just driving whatever sales is telling them that they should be selling when they meet every three months, six months, annually, whatever it may be. Have you worked with board members and, and how should they engage to make sure execs are taking this product-led or product mindset approach that we often throw around so so easily nowadays?
1: I have worked with boards a lot. And I would say that board members usually pretty sort quickly into the majority that are really just looking at this as an investment and want to know the revenue and the revenue curve because they're looking to flip it or take it public. If they're private equity folks, they want to give this company to somebody else at a higher price before it all breaks. But there's a a minority let's say it's a large minority you know 30 or 40% of the board members who really know what they're doing who are seasoned investors or vcs and the smart ones the good ones are asking these kinds of questions they're asking questions about how many customers are we interviewing and how often and what are we learning and what segments have we walked away from or what product ideas have we rejected they're asking things that are much more interesting than what's the sales number Good ones are asking, for instance, to have the team walk you through a post-sale integration and delivery of value. So what's the average time it takes between when a customer signs a purchase order and when their software is working and delivered value is a really good question from investors because it highlights support and customer success and product issues and engineering issues and lack of good fit and all this stuff. That's a question that I'm... uh, it's always hard to answer, but I love when investors are asking more thoughtful, insightful things. You know, They should be asking how durable our backend infrastructure on the software side is, and are we investing in tech debt, and are we scaling the infrastructure so that when we land all those sales, we don't end up on our faces, right? So experienced, good investors will guide those meetings to... Hard questions on the engineering side, hard questions on the product side. How do we know folks are going to want that? How do we know that the competitors don't already, you know, outpace us? They're always listening for when we're chasing some competitors' features from two years ago. Because that's never a way to succeed. But again, as as a product leader, as a product manager, you don't actually get to pick your
0: investors. No, nah, no. Nah. I do love all of those questions. You've you've talked through there. They they talk about something that's far greater than than the quarterly or annual financial report and the slides, et cetera. Indeed. It's a bunch more business-wide. Just to stick on this topic, Rich, what what have you seen uh, with regards to product managers or VPs of products stepping into board positions? Do they, do they often succeed That is that a good career path to board? I've
1: rarely seen that happen. Right. So, you know, the investors and board members tend to either have been CEOs of companies that had very successful exits or they came up on the sales side because it's very, very clear to every investor that selling is the number one job. Or sometimes they are hardcore technologists who can have a lot of insight into whether, you know, if you're working on AI and machine learning and natural language processing, it's really complicated stuff. And so you might have somebody who's on the investor side who's an expert in some technology area and has good taste around whether they're you know, the the invested company is blowing smoke or has a real thing. I would answer it a different way. What I see is that product managers become general managers and product VPs sometimes become CEOs. And from there, the world is your oyster. But I don't see folks jumping from the product jobs to investor jobs. It's just not the high flash area.
0: For product Managers heading up into the head of roles or VP roles. When it comes to the using these, we've been talking about in this session, what should they choose to hang on to and keep dialing into them? What should they let go of, do you think?
1: I believe that if you're in the product leader job, and for me, that means you're managing three or five or eight or 50 product folks and maybe designers. I think that's an executive role. And like all the other executive roles, has very little time to actually do primary research. So, If I'm the head of product, I believe it's my job to delegate all of the product work, all of it. But then my team needs me to lean in with taste and opinion and good questions, right? So I need to know which of the folks on my team are sufficiently smart and experienced and and adept to really get this done right. I may be coaching the junior folks or the ones who need help. So I might do three customer interviews myself with somebody listening and then sit in on a couple as the second chair. But my goal is to completely delegate all of this stuff. If I'm a player coach, I think I'm I'm either not getting the player work done or I'm not getting the coach work done. In fact, that's a challenge for people who who get promoted from the product manager to the product leader job, because many of us have deeply loved the product manager job and don't want to give it up. And that's a hard choice to make because you should be doing less and less of the actual work and more and more of the organizational design and the hiring and the job descriptions and the politics and the fending off incoming interrupts from the sales team and empowering all of, all the users. That's the real job of a product leader. I think of it as my job is to is to create the conditions such that my product managers can succeed and thrive. It's not my job to do their work. It's my job to... Sweep up all the floors so they don't slip so much.
0: I love it. We actually talked about exactly that point on a, a podcast in Sydney with Anthony Murphy that, that he learned from the military, which is in that leadership role, it's about creating the right conditions That's right. And, and environment for success. You can't tell every soldier where to shoot and what bullet to, to right. fire
1: It's It's motivation. I think of all product leaders as students of human behavior, because we need to know what's going to drive folks to do the right things and what. Measurement schemes or rewards are going to get the right results. Uh, we need to have lots of collaboration across all of the different functional groups. So, how do we generate that and make that happen? But I think if you're a product leader and you're doing product manager job, somebody's failing, maybe everybody's failing.
0: Thanks so much for this podcast recording, Rich. This has been awesome.
1: It's entirely my pleasure. And, and I'm just so pleased that you're on this tour and driving a really great, vibrant community. And as I said before, I think the fundraising for animal habitats is really, really important. So I I thank you three times for doing that.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. For the audience listening in, thank you very much for joining me and Rich Miranoff on this podcast recording. I've thoroughly enjoyed this this session. If you have enjoyed this podcast recording or any of the Product Coalition European Tour podcast recordings, and you'd like to support the Australian communities, wildlife, and volunteer firefighters that Rich mentioned just then, please head over to bushfire.productcoalition.com. If you'd like to know about more about the tour, the five cities, and come join me on a podcast over in Copenhagen, Berlin munich or zurich which are all coming up please jump over to tour.productcoalition.com and i'd love to sit down and record a session with yourself hopefully face to face in those cities always enjoy but i'm sure rich will get an opportunity in the future maybe i look forward to it face face that'd be great thank you all for listening until the next time thank you goodbye